0: (laughs) So let me tell you about Peter Boland He's an educator, he's an entertainer He's a singer-songwriter He's your all-around renaissance man, yes? (laughs) Absolutely And he is here today to um, inspire us Educate us, enlighten us And I understand he's just been given the title of father of philosophy (laughs) by vision itself so there you go please welcome the father of philosophy thank you for that patty and and thank you for the invitation to all the leadership here at vision for having me come out today it's such a blessing for me to be here and it's just such fun serendipity to bump into my old pal, Joe Rathburn, and to hear that wonderful song and all the music. It, I could go on and on. It is a blessing to be here at Vision with you all. And happy Father's Day to everyone. You know, there have been a lot of great fathers. I'm thinking of Atticus Finch. Isn't, isn't he the dad you want? Darth Vader, not so much. So we can't help but reflect on our relationships with our fathers today, as Joe's Song reminds us, the ambiguity and the nuance of being human and how hard it is to get it perfectly right. You know who had a problematic relationship with his father? Jesus. Um, He had two dads, Uh, one, the silent, mysterious creator of the universe. And then a stepdad named Joseph, a carpenter guy. And not one of the conversations that Jesus and Joseph had ended up in the Gospels. So maybe there wasn't that much to report. And it reminds me, you know, my, my father, who's gone now, he, he was very quiet. And we didn't talk much. When I was living at home, you know, my dad and I, we got along great, but we would go days and weeks without saying a word to each other. But to be in a room with him was such a comfortable thing. And, and we just never had that much to say to each other. It was just this easy, wordless, comfortable presence that we had. And sometimes silence builds connection better than saying all of the right words. I know this drove my mom nuts because she thought there was something wrong between my dad and I, because we didn't talk enough. Because she measured relationship by word count. (laughs) And if there was no verbiage, there was a problem. And so those are the fascinating nuances as a kid you learn as you grow up in a home with all of this male and female energy bouncing around. But that silence piece always stuck with me, and I, I... I experienced that truth deeply in the last few years of my father's life when he could no longer speak because Alzheimer's. And we would sit in the garden and hold hands and just for hours and, 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 and listen to the crows in the trees or, or feel the wind on our faces and, and feel the shimmer of eternity you know, wafting through the fabric of space and time When you don't talk, that's what starts to rise up sometimes. Sometimes the words interfere. You know, we went to this place where there were no more questions and no more answers. And we've gone past the place where questions and answers have purpose or power. And so connection comes in many forms. And the title of my talk today is called Rebuilding Connection. And I want to think about that with you and context of what we learn here in New Thought and at Vision, because connection comes in many forms, and verbalization is one of those forms, of course, but it isn't the only one. And today I want to tell you a little bit about another famous father, a guy called John Muir, who was the father of this this amazing idea, in my opinion, one of the greatest ideas in the American experience, the idea of the national park, (laughs) The idea that wilderness ought to be set aside for all time as a sacred holding, never to be mined or forested or grazed or exploited in any way. That idea, that uniquely American idea, has now been imported all over the world, that wilderness has intrinsic value beyond its commodification. That was a new idea. And I want to think about Muir a little bit with you today and, and how he came to father that idea. Now, he had a terrible relationship with his father. Some of you know the story that uh, John, John Muir was born in Scotland in 1838, and one of eight kids, and his father was a fundamentalist Christian, a very s- severe, devout, strict fundamentalist Christian who, under the threat of the lash, forced his son John to memorize and recite from memory the entire New Testament and most of the Old Testament. And if he got any of it wrong, he'd get a beating. I think that's what they're doing in the Sunday school right down the hall, right? <laughs> now, a little bit, <laughs> they change gears around here a little bit. Now, and of course, you know, young John would have much rather been gallivanting through the hills of Scotland, uh, tracing trout streams and hunting for birds' nests and doing all those kinds of wonderful things. But all of that stuff, according to his father, was a waste of time. And to waste time is a great sin that earns you another beating. So, so John Muir is a kind of microcosm of toxic Christianity and i know a lot of you are connecting with some of these components a lot of us are what bishop john shelby spong calls christians in exile so you see sometimes fathers teach us how to be through counterexample i'll never be that kind of guy we tell ourselves So at the age of uh, 11, his whole family came to America, and they settled in Wisconsin. And about 10 years later, when he's in his early 20s, John Muir enrolls at the University of Wisconsin, and he takes a bunch of classes on natural sciences, because he loves nature and animals and trees and all that cool stuff. And um, maybe you you know, just to jump ahead in the story a a little bit, John Muir, who never finished his formal education, was the first guy to theorize that Yosemite Valley was made by glacial activity. It was an outlier theory. Everybody thought he was an idiot. All the geologists of the time thought, oh, now you're wrong. It was, it's a cataclysmic earth, earthquake event, pushed the walls up. He's like, no, I think a big frozen river just cruised through here and carved out this valley. They're like, ah, what do you know? You, 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 know you, you never finished college. So that's the kind of wonderful outlier status we get from Muir. Yeah, he never finished college. He went to the University of Wisconsin for a couple of years. He never followed anyone's advice. He ignored his counselors, who might have helped him, I don't know, graduate or get a degree of some kind. But he wasn't interested in that. So after a couple of years of just taking whatever classes he felt like, he meandered off. He went on a thousand-mile hike. He walked from Wisconsin to Florida. Um, he would hop on a steamer not even knowing where it was going. A real wanderer. And he ended up out here in California like a lot of us do. And, and he, he, he shook the, the dust of that tiny Wisconsin town off, and he shook the dust of that fundamentalist theology off as well. And Muir later wrote about his earlier conception of religion. He said... I never tried to abandon creeds or code of civilization. They went away of their own accord without leaving any consciousness of loss. <laughs> and then recalling his earlier understanding of God, he wrote that idea of God was as purely a manufactured article as any puppet of a halfpenny theater. Ouch. So this is a guy struggling with God or struggling with his idea of God. But it wasn't God or the sacred that Muir was rejecting. He was rejecting a narrow, limited, and limiting definition of God that in his experience bore no resemblance to the, the sacred ground of being that he experienced in the woods. the boundless expansiveness and beauty of the natural world came to stand for Muir as that sacred presence. So like I said, he eventually found himself out here in California like a lot of us did. And he was in San Francisco and he he made his way up into the Sierras and he went to this obscure place called the Yosemite. And Yosemite would be John Muir's burning bush. How many of you here have been to Yosemite? Yeah. It was his burning bush. It was a a theophany, a transformative vision of the divine and a sacred call to action. His first sight of that hallowed valley, he came through the southern entrance, which most of us do from this part of California, through through what is now a tunnel. He didn't have a tunnel then, an inspiration point. And seeing that was the pivotal moment of his life upon which everything turned in a new direction. You know, Muir would hike alone for three, four weeks at a time carrying nothing but a cooking pot, a bag of tea, a loaf of bread, and a ragged copy of Emerson's essays. And it was through the work of Ralph Waldo Emerson that Muir's evolving theology began to take shape. One, one time, he writes about this in one of his books, one time uh, during a violent storm when, when any of us would be seeking shelter, he climbed as high as he could into the limbs of a Douglas fir tree to sway back and forth in the storm and feel the elements of nature as intimately and as fully as possible. He wanted so desperately, so longingly to tear down every barrier between himself and what was real. And Muir's writings of his experiences in the High Sierras began to reach a national audience. And he shifted the consciousness of the nation. Even his idol, Ralph Waldo Emerson, on his westward trip, made it up into the Yosemite just to meet John Muir. And Emerson offered Muir a a professorship position at Harvard University. And Mirror turned it down, of course. How could he leave the cathedral of these hallowed canyon walls? How could he leave the luminous glow of the late summer meadows of Yosemite Valley? How could he close his ears to the sermons of these waters? How could he close his eyes to the turning of the wheeled universe? all around him. What esteemed university position could ever exceed any of that? So we stayed, and a few years later, and he had another famous encounter up in Yosemite. The President of the United States, Teddy Roosevelt, went on a big national tour and went up into Yosemite to meet Muir, and the two of them trekked throughout the park and camped out under the stars and sat around the fire. Can you imagine? the President of the United States, camping. (laughs) I had this vision of Donald Trump and Donald Jr. and Eric Trump and Ivanka and Jared Kushner (laughs) sitting around a campfire. No, that just doesn't work. And Roosevelt took back to Washington with him this nascent idea, this fledgling notion that wild places need protection. Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican and a conservative. And conservative meant a lot of different things back then than it means now. It meant conserving that which is good and right and pure and true. And that meant, in what we call today, environmentalism. And, you know, because as Emerson's young friend Henry David Thoreau put it, in wilderness is the preservation of the world. The idea that setting aside wilderness, the idea of the national park, is at core a profoundly spiritual idea. It's a kind of of nature theology. The idea that God may be found everywhere, but especially in places free of human interference. And that when we preserve nature, we are caring deeply for our collective soul. And this value that we find in nature is a value that cannot be measured in board feet of timber, barrels of oil, stakeholder dividends, and corporate profits. So it is that each of us, when we walk in nature, may reconnect with the mother-father God of our understanding. And a lot of you know, of course, later in his life, uh, John Muir founded the Sierra Club. And he fought hard against developers and miners and ranchers and casino builders who wanted to develop Yosemite Valley. They wanted to build housing tracks in the valley. They wanted to build casinos and mine and timber and graze their cattle there. That's why he thought it was so urgent that it needed protection from those particular activities. So in that sense, Vermeer, I think, his environmental activism was nothing more or less than Jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple. We have to protect some places from the profit motive, from industry, from exploitation. And on the philosophical side of all of this, since I am the father of philosophy now, (laughs) according to Facebook, Uh, that's my next tattoo. <laughs> but on the philosophical side of all of this, there's a through line. Let me see if I can share this with you. There's a through line, I think, that connects this American nature mysticism with a couple of things. It connects it with the indigenous spirituality of the world's original people, what we call in Canada the First Nation, <laughs> Native Americans. And there's a through line with this nature mysticism that that goes all the way back to the philosophical and religious traditions of ancient India. Because you see Emerson and Thoreau back there in Concord, Massachusetts, when they were students at Harvard, they were some of the first Americans to ever read the scriptures of of the Hindus, the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, that non-duality philosophy in fresh English translations, coming into Boston Harbor from colonial India and ending up on the shelves of the library at Harvard University, where a young Thoreau and Emerson first encountered them. And the non-duality of Vedanta philosophy became the philosophical bedrock of Emerson's essays, of Thoreau's work. It had an enormous impact on spirituality in America. Ernest Holmes. Everybody in New Thought counts Emerson as an essential source. So it's through Emerson's essays that this, this idea that everything is God becomes just part of the American spiritual experience. The idea that all is one and all is sacred. And as Muir lost the God of his childhood, he found a more mature, more inclusive, more authentic understanding of divinity. Through Emerson and his immersion in the Sierras, in the High Sierras, and in nature. And so Muir was rebuilding the connection that was beaten out of him by his father. That idea that God and coming to God meant pain, it meant humiliation, it meant unworthiness. And all of those associations beaten into him by his father, by his father's. We might say limited theology. And that God was no longer for mere this distant, deathly apparition. God was the swelling of our hearts as we fall in love again and again and again with this achingly beautiful world. Now, there's another friend of Emerson and Thoreau, the great poet Walt Whitman, who put it this way in his masterpiece called Song of Myself from his book, Leaves of Grass. Whitman wrote this. He said, And I say to mankind, be not curious about God. For I, who am curious about each, am not curious about God. No array of terms can say how much I am at peace about God and about death. I hear and behold God in every object, yet understand God not in the least. Nor do I understand who there can be more wonderful than myself. Why should I wish to see God better than this day? I see something of God each hour of the 24, and each moment then in the faces of men and women I see God. And in my own face in the glass, I find letters from God dropped in the street. And every one is signed by God's name. And I leave them where they are. For I know that wheresoever I go, others will punctually come forever and ever. That's just a little bit of Song of Myself. It's like a 40-page poem. It's ecstatic spiritual writing at its best. So we do not rebuild connection. We allow connection. We do not create connection. We discover connection. We do not achieve connection. We receive connection. You know, in 1950 a bereaved father wrote a letter to the famed physicist Albert Einstein for some guidance and advice. This man's son had died. And in his sorrow, he didn't know where to turn, so he thought, hey, I'll write a letter to the famous Einstein. Maybe he can help. (laughs) He's smart. And Einstein wrote back to this grieving father. And here's what Einstein wrote. He wrote, a human being is a part of the whole called the universe. A part limited in time and space. And he experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. This delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires, and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task, Einstein wrote, must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living things and the whole of nature in its beauty. It's a beautiful thing that Einstein did for that man and for all of us, that our suffering magnifies the narrower our scope. The more I think about me, the worse it gets. There's that Tibetan Buddhist saying, you want to go to hell? Think about yourself. (laughs) You want to go to heaven? Think about others. And that's really what I think Einstein's drilling down into Nothing can assuage the grief of a father losing a son. You can't fix that. But you can move past the suffering somewhat through that shift in consciousness. So take all of this in as we reflect this morning on our own relationships with our fathers or with our children. And let us hold this truth together that our connections are inseparable that we arise and pour forth alongside one another in a state of interbeing, And that this world is a divine field of infinite abundance and possibility. And while forms may come and go, the sacred formless source from which all forms come and to which all forms return is itself undepletable, infinite, boundless, and real and that we may experience this deep and abiding connection right where we are. For how could we ever be separate? How can you stop being what you are (coughs) and what you have always been, an expression of divinity? How can that cord ever be cut? For in our inseparable interconnection with one another, we are that sacred source. So when I think about someone like Muir, who came from a challenging origin story, as so many of us have, and had to go through a prodigal son period of just walking away for a long time and very far, And through the journey, a rebirthing begins to manifest itself. And for some of us, we find that solace and divinity in nature. For some of us, we find it in service. For some of us, we find it in literature and film and art and music. So for some of us, we find it in study. For some of us, we find it in meditation and prayer and yoga. As Krishna reminds us in the Bhagavad Gita, however you come to me, that's how I come to you. To love what you love and know that I will meet you there, Krishna says in the Gita. To no longer agonize about what is the right path or what am I supposed to believe. To know that the experience of the divine is past all doctrines and beyond all theories. It is an experience, not a belief. It is an embodiment, not an ideology. This is the perennial wisdom of all of the philosophical and religious traditions. It's what drew Ernest Holmes in his study from Christianity to a a broadening perspective of all of the world's wisdom traditions. And here we are, Father's Day 2019, gathering in a room like this to be reminded and to reaffirm our own curiosity about these perennial wisdom touchstones. Because something about these ideas that we've been moving through together this morning, something about them resonates within us, like like music, like a truth that we know but can't speak. And all of that, for some of us, is best experienced out in the trees, around a mountain lake, with the wind in our face. And some of us experience it best in sacred community, like this. But all of it does not come from outside of us. All of it rises up from within us. And all learning is recollection. All learning is remembering. And when we think about figures like Mirror and their journey, we are emboldened in our own lives to follow our passions and to find our paths through this beautiful, beautiful life. Namaste. Thank you. Thank you very much. Happy holidays to everybody. Thank you.